Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are in the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about innovations in the diagnosis of lung cancer with Dr. Sanket Thakor and Kyle Bramley. Dr. Bramley is an assistant professor of medicine, and Dr. Thakor is an instructor of medicine in the Department of Interventional Pulmonology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So maybe, uh, Kyle, I'm going to start with you. Maybe both of you can tell us a little bit about yourselves and what it is you do. Kyle, maybe you go first. Sure. Um, so I'm an interventional pulmonologist and critical care doctor. I often have struggled to describe what that means. Um, and so I'm a pulmonologist, a lung doctor who specializes in minimally invasive procedures to diagnose um, cancers and other lesions inside the chest. Okay. And, and Sanket, how about you? I do uh, very similar to what Kyle just described as well. I'm as also an interventional pulmonologist and I'm also a critical care doctor. So we uh, commonly take care of a lot of patients with lung cancer. So, you know, it is Lung Cancer Awareness Month. And I think a lot of people know that lung cancer is a, a deadly uh, cancer. But um, what people may not know is that we actually have decent screening uh, for lung cancer, um, and we know a little bit about the risk factors that put people at risk. One of the ones that we often talk about is smoking. But Kyle, do you want to tell us a little bit about what's available in terms of screening for lung cancer, who's eligible for it, and why it's important? Sure. So I, uh, as you said, lung cancer screening is very important. Um, and recently, we have some very good data that suggests that people who are at um, an increased risk of getting lung cancer during their lifetime um, can be screened with a CAT scan. Uh, and so patients who are eligible are patients who've um, had a long smoking history and are over the age of 55. Um, the way that the screening generally works is you have um, a meeting with a provider to talk about what your risk factors are, to talk about what the screening um, may show, um, and then uh, receive an annual uh, CAT scan. So it's a it's a low dose of radiation CAT scan that's performed yearly for three years um, with the idea of looking for um, lung cancers when they're still small um, and more easily treatable. And so uh, Sanke, just to follow up on what Kyle said, um, a, a few questions of clarification. The first is, how much of a of a of a smoking history do you need to have? Like, if you've smoked one cigarette in your entire life, does that count, or do you need to have smoked every day for fifty years? How, how does that work? And um, and second question, why is it annual just for three years? I mean, so you have your screening for three years, but could you not get a lung cancer in year six, seven, 10, 15 if you continue to smoke? Uh, so let's uh, tackle the first question. Um, so uh, you're asking uh, how long smoking history is indicated, right? And we generally, when we describe uh, smoking history, we go with by pack years smoking history. So according to uh, for according to the lung cancer screening guidelines, we look for at least 20 pack years 
of smoking history. What that means is that if somebody smokes about a pack a day for straight 20 years, they would qualify for lung cancer screening. Okay. Or similarly, if they smoked half a pack a day for 40 years or two packs a day for 10 years, right? That is correct. So uh, cumulatively, it has to be 20 packs a year uh, for smoking history, and they would qualify for that. Okay. And Kyle, maybe you can pick up on the question of why is it annual for three years? What happens after year three? The biggest part of that, I would say, is just that that's what the research has shown and that's what the research projects have done. Um, I think a lot of us would continue to advocate for ongoing screening um, through the course of the lifetime, depending on risk factors and their other health issues. So, uh, Senke, you know, when we talk about screening, oftentimes the whole idea behind screening is to pick up these cancers before they are symptomatic. Um, Oftentimes, this is when these cancers are really small and presumably the most treatable. We know, however, that lung cancer is the leading cause of death, both in men and women in this country. So does screening really work? I mean, are we picking up lung cancers when they're smaller? And if so, is there really good treatment for lung cancer when they're small such that we can actually improve survival rates? Uh, I do think that uh, there is enough data to suggest that everyone who qualifies for the lung cancer screening and uh, if they do not have any other medical problem that's going to kill them sooner than that lung cancer itself, then uh, it is highly recommended that they do get the yearly lung cancer screening. Because if catch early, there is a, a definitive therapy like a surgical therapy when they can just surgeons can go in and take that part of the lung out. I will also add to that that we often think about that, oh, do we need to make this lung cancer screening change? Do we need to change criteria? Do we need to make any uh, fancy screening? That's not the uh, uh, point here. The point really being is that we have good lung cancer screening. And let's see if we can get everyone who qualifies for that. Can we get them uh, do the lung cancer screening? That's where the key is. Because if you look now, out of all the people who qualify for the lung cancer screening, uh, even after having the lung cancer screening for close to seven, eight years now, very small percentage of those patients will actually would get the lung cancer screening. And this is where we can get the uh, biggest advantage if we can get all those patients to come and get the lung cancer screening. Yeah, I mean, it certainly sounds like it would be something that people who have more than a 20-pack year history of smoking should talk to their doctor about, especially if they can find these cancers um, at an earlier stage and potentially improve their outcomes. So um, that really brings us, Kyle, to the next question, which is, so what happens for a patient who does do that. Let's suppose that somebody who is listening to our show today listens to what Sankat says and goes and talks to their doctor. They go, they get their low-dose CT, and lo and behold, there's a lesion found. Um, What happens then? So that's a great question. So it's always important to remember that a lot of the lesions that we find on these scans may not be cancers. And so it's very important to um, meet with someone who has an expertise in this area to talk about what the risk of that lesion um, being a cancer is. 
Um, in some patients, there may be uh, some characteristics on the on the scan that make us think that it's actually not a cancer, and we may elect to just watch those over time. Things uh, like a small size or um, a location uh, may be suggestive. In some of those patients, those nodules are going to be concerning for a cancer, um, and so additional workup will be necessary. Um, in a lot of those cases, uh, the patients may end up getting a biopsy, um, which can be done a, a variety of different ways, um, where we actually go in and get a piece of that tissue to get a sample, um, and then the pathologist will look at it under a microscope and be able to tell us um, exactly what we're dealing with. And so, Senkat, do you want to walk us through some of the ways in which um, biopsies are done these days? I mean, I would presume that many of them are, are done simply with a, a needle and the CAT scan. Is that right? Correct. And uh, But can I also add one thing, like before we go to biopsy, so when we look at the nodule, we generally like to think about three things, right? Whether that could be really, really low risk or that could be really, really high risk, or that could be somewhere in between. So the very, very low risk are simple. We're just going to repeat a CT scan future in a time and see if that nodule, what's its behavior, right? Uh, on the flip side, the very, very high risk are many times also straightforward. When sometimes we also choose that, hey, you know what? Here, biopsy is not even needed. So surgeons might just decide that this is such a high risk that even the biopsy doesn't give us an answer. Uh, it's not going to have, I'm, I'm not going to be able to have a good night's sleep with that. So in that case is what we surgeons decide that, you know what, we're just going to go and take it out. And that's a very common approach. It's important for patients to know that. Uh, then the challenging uh, patient populations are the one which just falls right in between. To be honest, most of them feels ri uh, fits right in between though. And that's the time that we think about the biopsy part of it. And so, Kyle, one would think that the decision between which way to biopsy this nodule really might depend on where exactly the nodule was. I mean, is this something that's amenable to a, a needle biopsy under CT guidance or whether it's more amenable to a bronchoscopy-guided uh, biopsy? Is that right? Yeah, it really does depend a lot on the location and where it's uh, located relative to the airways and the other structures in the chest. And so nodules that are further out into the periphery of the lung, closer to the chest wall, are usually more amenable to a CT-guided approach or even possibly an ultrasound-guided approach if it's really right at the edge of the lung. Whereas things that are more centrally located, and especially if they're located um, in closer proximity to one of the larger airways or branches of the windpipe that go out into the lungs, um, we often think about taking a more bronchoscopic approach because we'll be able to sample it with a higher efficiency. And so, you know, Sanket, when we think about these different uh, techniques, are there, you know, risks and benefits associated with uh, with these? And um, so, you know, is it can, can you talk a little bit more about what do you talk to patients about when they're undergoing these biopsies in terms of risks and benefits? Yeah, and and there are two ways to think about that. One would be overall in gen in in terms of uh, in, in general how we're gonna 
find the overall, not just diagnosis, but the staging as well. And how are we going to soon get them to the treatment? Because that's the ultimate goal. Uh, and then, so the, we have to think about risk and benefit of that. And then on the day of the procedure and, and risk and benefit of those individual procedures. So when you do a CT-guided biopsy, the risk that we think about, uh, the most common one would be lung collapse. And that risk can be as high as about 20 to 30 percent, uh, depending on what uh, literature that you're looking at. And there is a fair number of those patients uh, end up having a chest tube, which is a treatment of those lung collapse. And a um, fair number of those patients might end up spending a few days uh, in the hospital uh, because of that. And then the other risk factors would be bleeding from that. Uh, and the same way when we do those with the bronchoscopy, then the risk of lung collapse is significantly low, uh, under 2%. And then there is risk of bleeding as well, which is under 1% to 2%. And these are the most common that risk we think about. But at the same time, we also think about the diagnostic success, right? Because it's always a benefit versus risk ratio. So when you think about the city-guided biopsy, as of today, what we know is that on an average, the success is around 85 to 90%. That depends on the size of the nodule, characteristic of the nodule. And on the flip side, when we go with the bronchoscope, as of now, uh, the diagnostic success is somewhere in a range of around 70%. So there is a trade-off there when you think about an approach. Okay. Well, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. When we come back, we'll learn more about lung cancer diagnosis with my guests, Dr. Sankat Thakur and Kyle Bramley. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where their Center for Gastrointestinal Cancers provides patients with gastric cancers a comprehensive multidisciplinary approach to the treatment of their cancer, including clinical trials. SmiloCancerHospital.org. There are over 16.9 million cancer survivors in the U.S. and over 240,000 here in Connecticut. Completing treatment for cancer is a very exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. The return to normal activities and relationships may be difficult, and cancer survivors may face other long-term side effects of cancer, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources for cancer survivors are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital, to keep cancer survivors well and focused on healthy living. The Smilo Cancer Hospital Survivorship Clinic focuses on providing guidance and direction to empower survivors to take steps to maximize their health, quality of life, and longevity. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guests, Dr. Sanket Thakur and Kyle Bramley. We're talking about advances in diagnosis of lung cancer in honor of Lung Cancer Awareness Month. Now, right before the break, we were talking about kind of the two different ways uh, lung cancer is often diagnosed. One is with a, a CT-guided needle biopsy. The other is with a bronchoscopic approach. So, Kyle, you know, before the break, you were telling us that a lot of this really depends on where the the tumor is 
located. Um, one would think that if you had a peripheral lesion um, and you didn't want to get a CT-guided biopsy because you were afraid of the risk of, of lung collapse, is there... Is there a way that bronchoscopy can can get to those lesions, or is that simply not amenable, given the fact that um, it's not centrally located? Yeah, so that's a great question. So traditionally, we were very limited by the tools that we had to bronchoscopically work ourselves out into the periphery of the lung. We were using a lot of electromagnetic navigation, where we essentially put an electromagnetic field around the patient, and then we correlate that electromagnetic field um, to the CAT scan that diagnosed the nodule. And then we would essentially um, use a computer to make a GPS-like signal that would allow us to drive out into the lungs. Um, and that increased our yield some, but we were still very limited by the tools, um, by the size of the instruments, and also by our ability to make small adjustments um, in our navigation when we drove out to that nodule. Um, one of the biggest advances for our field as interventional pulmonologists um, and, and pulmonologists, you know, the people who are interested in thoracic cancers in general, um, has been the um, new tool that we've all um, started using, which is the uh, robotic bronchoscopy. And so it's different than a regular bronchoscopy in that I'm not standing there driving it with my hands. There's actually... Um, a robot arm that will drive out into the periphery. It has the advantage of it's much smaller than our standard bronchoscopes. Um, it's also much stiffer, much more um, navigable into the airways, and so we can drive out much further into the airways than we used to. We were also very limited by our ability to biopsy things that didn't have an airway that went directly to them in the past. And with the um, robotic bronchoscopy, we can essentially know where we are in space drive out to the to the lesion or next to the lesion and now pass instruments across the airway wall into the lung tissue um, itself. Um, so it's a very new um, uh, instrument that we're using, um, but the preliminary literature suggests that the diagnostic yield is is much higher and certainly approaching the, the diagnostic rates um, that we've classically seen with uh, transthoracic CT-guided biopsies. Um, one of the things that we can do is now that we can actually make small changes because the catheter is much stiffer and, and, and more easily to, to navigate, we can actually incorporate that with live image guidance as well. And so we can actually take a CT scan while the patient's having a bronchoscopy, make sure that we're in the lesion, make sure that we're getting a sample, and uh, can make small adjustments if, if we're not inside the lesion. So, Sankat, that sounds really uh quite great that you'd be able to get a higher diagnostic yield. Um, but it, it also sounds like, especially if you're taking these stiffer uh, tubes and going across the actual parenchyma or the actual tissue of the lung, that you might actually see higher rates of bleeding. So have, have you seen an increase in complication rates with robotics as well? Uh, no. In fact, if anything, the risk of bleeding is less than the traditional uh, bronchoscopy because in general, when those nodules are in a peripheral of the lung, your vessel starts to get smaller. 
So that kind of decreases the risk of the bleeding. And I will add to that that one of the other advantage of the bronchoscopic biopsy is that if someone was going to bleed, you're already in the airways, so you can kind of fix it right then and there. By fix it, you mean that you can coagulate the the vessels uh, on the inside because you have the tools to do that? Correct. And we can tamponade that area so they would not have any complications from that bleeding. Um, Body takes care of the stopping part, but we kind of uh, help them not develop any complications. And so, Kyle, it sounds like this is new technology. Um, is this widely available and is it covered by insurance? So uh, bronchoscopic biopsies, um, in truth, are, have always um, been covered well by most insurances, essentially all insurances. Um, they certainly want patients to get their, their lung cancer diagnosed and treated. The other part of the question, are, 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 is it widely available? I mean, one would think that bronchoscopy is pretty widely available. I think most, most people know that, uh, you know, their pulmonary doctor uh, can, can do bronchoscopy. But this whole concept of adding a robot uh, to it uh, sounds like that's a little avant-garde um, and may not be necessarily available at, you know, the the local pulmonologist might be something that is only available in, you know, larger centers. Is that right? Or is this something that is more ubiquitous? No, at the current time, it's really um, centralized around large um, hospitals and large academic centers um, and certainly large hospital systems. Um, It's certainly not a procedure that um, at least I don't think will be widely adopted by pulmonologists um, universally. Um, it really does require some extra training and expertise. Um, and um, obviously, the, the, the bronchoscopic skills to do this, um, are, are, are there's definitely a learning curve associated with it. Um, and so I don't think it'll be universally adopted. Um, and so it's really just a, in large hospital systems right now. And, and Seneca, you know, when we think about robotics, it, it certainly has started to really make its foray into the surgical subspecialty. So certainly we've talked on this show about how robotics have entered the operating room for cancers like prostate cancer, uh, gynecologic cancers, etc., but that technology has a cost, right? And so have people looked at, and I, I realize that this is newer technology in terms of bronchoscopy, but have people looked at the cost of uh, robotic bronchoscopy and compared it to standard bronchoscopy, kind of done a cost effectiveness analysis um, to see whether or not this actually does um add value? Um, And if it is more expensive, um, who bears the brunt of that cost? Is it the patient or is that really something that is being covered by insurances uh, that normally would cover just a standard bronchoscopic evaluation? Uh, yeah, so um, when we we are comparing the robotic with the traditional uh, bronchoscopy, uh, but I would also add that the navigational bronchoscopy part of that, that always already has been there for several years now. It was just not as good as the robotic bronchoscopy. So when you think about switching from the traditional approaches to the robotic bronchoscopy, yes, there is an hospital has to make some investment uh, upfront to get this kind of technology, but the cost that drips down to the patient 
that has not it's not going to change uh, compared to what we are already doing with the navigational bronchoscopy so that's an important part uh, to note the second part to that question is that is it adding any value and i do think that it does add a value because in two ways in uh, one because you're going to improve the diagnostic success uh, and two the when we do the robotic bronchoscopy it also allows uh, us to do a second procedure, what we call endobronchial ultrasound, which is really important for those lung cancer patients because that allows us to take samples of those lymph nodes in the chest, in the mediastinum, which helps us with the lung cancer staging. Because when we think about lung cancer diagnosis, we're thinking about the diagnosis and staging simultaneously. Those are not two separate things. When you look at national data, every time a patient who has a nodule that is suspected to be a lung cancer, the number of biopsy that you do on a separate days that delays their care by on an average about 17 days. So what you want to... Uh, focus on is to not just improve the diagnostic success, but you also want to minimize the number of biopsies that they go through on a separate occasion, because what that's going to allow you is to not just finish the diagnosis, but also the lung cancer staging. You're going to get them all the information that you need sooner, and they can get the therapy sooner. And that's the real value of this technology. And so, Kyle, picking up on that, I mean, before the robot came along, in terms of staging, was that done on a different day because a different test was required? In other words, you would need to do a mediastinoscopy or something uh, different than a standard bronchoscopy? Yeah, so in, in patients who we have any concern that the that the cancer may have spread to the lymph nodes, they, they all need their... Um, their mediastinum staged. There's two ways to do that. One is with a mediastinoscopy, which is um, an older technique that's still in use uh, for patients who need confirmation. But because we can do it uh, minimally invasive with endobronchial ultrasound, as, as Sankit was talking about, that's really become the first choice for mediastinal staging. And so we have lots of patients um, who undergo that procedure, but if a diagnosis is not made, well, it's good news because it means that the cancer hasn't spread to the lymph nodes, but a lot of those patients ended up going on for a second test to get a biopsy of the actual nodule if they needed that before they underwent their definitive treatment for their cancer. And so in terms of cost, it's certainly there's a time cost that that's going to be improved. Um, by having two procedures done at once, um, but also the, just the cost of the procedures, I think, too. Having two procedures is going to be more expensive, um, and especially if there's complications from those procedures, um, then that's going to add to the patient's overall you know, healthcare costs. And so, Sankit, where do you see the field going now that you have the robot and this ability to to do endobronchial ultrasound and biopsy these lymph nodes uh, at the same time? It sounds like that certainly has been uh, one of the, if not the, major advance in terms of diagnosis of, of lung cancer. Are there other things coming down on the horizon that you're particularly excited about in terms of lung cancer management? Uh, yes. Yeah. So the, there are a lot of things coming uh, down the pipeline, I would think. And um, 
uh, our expertise is more on the diagnosis part of that. But on the therapeutic part, a lot of exciting uh, development coming up uh, down the pipeline as well in terms of newer targeted therapies. There are new targeted therapy every other month when you uh, look up a literature. So those things going to continue to improve. When we focusing about the robotic bronchoscopy and all, generally we're thinking about the early stage diagnosis. And one of the uh, uh, one of the important thing that we need to focus on moving forward would be that how can we cut down on the time from the uh, nodule was found to the time when we treat them. And I think uh, that's going to have a significant impact on an outcome here. And uh, try to get that cancer early because we are focusing on something called a state shift. We know that the end, uh, lung cancer when diagnosed in a late stage has an uh, Outcome and a fire survival is under 10% compared to when you diagnose lung cancer early in stage one or two. Then that survival is uh, at fire survival is above well above 70%. So that's our focus. We want to diagnose them as early as possible so that we can treat them uh, as well as possible. Dr. Sanket Thakor is an instructor of medicine, and Dr. Kyle Bramley is an assistant professor of medicine in the Department of Interventional Pulmonology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.